Over this past Labor Day weekend, TSA screened nearly 9 million Americans, more than they had during the same period in 2019, before the pandemic began. It is a welcome sign that COVID fears are starting to subside. But as we begin to re-engage with the world through air travel and airlines, we should also consider the toll that all of this renewed activity takes on the planet itself. Think of this. If global aviation were a country today, it would rank as the 20th largest CO2 emitter. And absent new policies, it's projected to triple its output by 2050. But travellers shouldn't have to choose between seeing the world and saving it. While airlines are competing for the traveller dollar, the fiercest competition comes from the challenges they face from pandemics, geopolitical tensions and climate change. To succeed here requires building differently to ensure that they are resilient enough to withstand the turbulence today and tomorrow. I was born overseas and I've moved frequently. Travel has meant access to different cultures, different worldviews, different foods and sights and sounds. But romanticising movement and ignoring climate change would be problematic. And it's long past time for us and our leaders to ask what we damage when we travel, not just what we gain. The urgency of climate change and the need to adapt is being seen around the world. And if the airline industry and aviation leaders want to keep a competitive edge, they have to seriously invest in meeting climate sustainability goals. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. We are now in like the adaptation phase of climate change, where we build our houses, how we build them, what we put on the roof. Like we have to adapt to forest fires, to droughts to bigger storms, to more frequent hurricanes. Like, this is what we as climbers do. We're really used to the environment telling us what is possible and then adapting to it. My name is Will Gadd. I live in Canmore, Alberta, in the Canadian Rockies, and I'm a pro athlete, a guide, and lately been telling stories about climate change and, and other events in the mountains globally. Um, I guess what I'm best known for maybe is, is climbing Niagara Falls and setting paragliding world distance records. I love it. You're a man of many hats and for all seasons by the sounds of things. Uh, well, speaking of seasons, you do something that I don't think I really fully understood was a thing, which is ice climbing. What ice climbing is, is climbing vertical frozen water. And you have this sort of medieval weaponry. You've got these big claws on your feet that you can kick into the ice and they stick. And then you've got these nasty looking ice tools that you can throw the picks into the ice and they stay. And you can climb just about anything as long as it stays frozen. And it's violent. It's like walking into a china shop and smashing it. It's really satisfying. <laughs> so, <laughs> it sounds like at the end of a like hard week, it's the perfect kind of therapy. It is. And it's, it's just, it's beautiful too. And it's never going to be the same. It falls down for sure every year. 
And then you come back in the fall and it's a different climb. It's frozen in different ways. And it's, it's just fascinating. Fast forward a few years and Will has made a name for himself as one of the most intrepid explorers of his generation. He was the first man to scale a frozen Niagara Falls in 2015 and was named a mountain hero by the United Nations in 2018 for his more recent role exploring the impacts of climate change on our planet's coldest places. The work was spurred on by one particular journey to the icy top of a volcano in Tanzania. Well, I went over to Kilimanjaro in 2014 to climb ice in Africa, and the ice that was supposed to be there, broadly speaking, wasn't, or it was a small, literal sliver of what it had been. And I was I was blown away how wrong the maps were. And I, for the first time, really realized in talking, especially with the local guides there, the Tanzanians, they're like, well, this glacier's gone, this glacier's gone, this one's almost gone. Not only that, you know, my harvest is down to half of what it was because we're not getting our second rainy season anymore. And and for the first time in 2014, I started to think, wow, this is actually a really big problem. Like imagine if you showed up to go to work and your office building wasn't there. You might be like, hey, we have an issue. And that's what happened on Kilimanjaro. And then I went back in 2019 and just in five years, we took pictures of the differences in the ice features that we had shot in 2014, and I helped a, a meteorologist rebuild his weather station on top of Kilimanjaro. And after talking with him and seeing these changes so quickly in a place that wasn't really supposed to change that quickly, um, I decided that, yeah, this needs to be something in my life that I do more of. I think when you show people something, then they get it a little bit better than just reading about it or, you know, climate change doesn't look very sexy on, on paper, but I can show how it's affected my world and how it's also, as you know, you know, now it's starting to affect people's worlds, whether it's fires or insanely hot temperatures or just really unpredictable weather. We're all in this together. So that's where I'm at right now is how do I make changes? What do I do? Part of Will's work includes leading climate scientists on expeditions to quantify the toll of carbon emissions around the world. He's explored one of the two remaining ice sheets on the planet, the Greenland Ice Sheet, which, as it melts away, is the largest single ice contributor to our rising sea levels. The Greenland Ice Sheet is roughly four times the size of California. It's huge. And you, you, you get out of the helicopter there, and you think, could I even walk out of here? You know, it's a long way to anywhere. And then you set up camp on this glacier. There's nothing green as far as you can see, nothing that's visibly alive. And then there's a river going down a giant hole in the ice, disappearing and thundering down there. It's like some kind of monster lair. And then you wait for it to get cold, and then you go down inside the glacier and it's this system of passages and giant rooms and just it's like being in a giant blue cathedral yeah <laughs> it's it's absolutely incredible i wish everybody could see it it's rivers and lakes forming on top of the ice it's massive amounts of water and that goes down to the bottom of the glacier and lubricates it so that the whole part of the of the ice sheet that's heading for the coast goes faster and that has an impact obviously when that 
ice goes into the ocean and that water goes into the ice ocean and sea level rises and you live in Bangladesh or, or coastal California. But on Will's journeys, he's mindful of his own carbon emissions. He doesn't want to be what he calls a climate criminal. Have you made changes to your life and lifestyle as a result of what you're seeing? Like, do you go on every climb now? No. What do you do differently? So, you know, as, as a pro athlete and speaker, it was really common to get in a jet and fly over to Europe for the weekend, that kind of thing. And I don't do that anymore. You know, I may still go to Europe, and but I put three or four things together and try to go once a year versus a lot. And it's still a criminal thing to do. Ultimately, we have to reduce these emissions or we'll get wilder and wilder weather as, as the big picture climate changes and it'll have bigger and bigger impacts on us. So it, it's not perfect. And, and I fully admit that, but it's better. And I, and I think that's the goal. You know, I know what my carbon footprint is. I've got spreadsheets on it now and, and I've reduced it by a, about half to two thirds of what it was a few years ago. And in talking to the scientists and, and the policy people that I've had the good fortune to talk to, we, we need to make global changes. We need to do it individually, but this needs to be a global thing or it's it's not going to work out. I think that you're certainly correct in that it doesn't, it's not going to be personal changes and the individual level that will be able to really take this home and drive this home. This is going to be policy. This is government. This is big business. We can be the people who are sounding the alarm and, um, you know, calling the drumbeat, but, you know, we don't wield the orchestra. Uh, these are the, the players that do. I, I think that's an excellent point, and, but I would also not disempower yourself too much. Like, we vote. We do have agency in North America and Europe to elect our leaders, and we do have the power to affect that policy. I'm really worried for my kids. I've got kids and, and a big part of this for me is I, I want to have an answer when, when my daughters are in their in their twenties and be like, So dad, what did you do about climate change? Well, I flew all over the place like mad is not a great answer, <laughs> you know. All right. So yeah, it's for our kids. Like they are gonna have to deal with this. I'm hopeful. I think we're gonna take a pounding. Like we're 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 gonna have to adapt. We're gonna take some shots. But I'm hopeful that we can limit the damage to that to some extent. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. Our first episode this season was about competitiveness, and a key component of being able to stay ahead is resiliency. This is a time of great uncertainty, untenable geopolitical tensions, shaky economic forces, and the sweeping impacts of climate change are creating a state of heightened stress and constant change. And industries, institutions, and individuals alike are asking how they can prepare for the unknown while staying ahead. In each sector, that will require redefining competitiveness, measuring not just dollars and cents, but the holistic impacts of business practices and public policy on society. Because learning to adapt today in the face of adversity means pursuing long-term solutions and more sustainable outcomes. It means understanding resilience on a granular level in order to make big-picture change. 
Take the aviation industry. Between the pandemic, geopolitical events or recession fears, there are always reasons not to act. But a failure to do so presents an opportunity for others in the industry to gain an edge. And some have been doing just that. Working towards new sustainability goals within the last few years will drive the industry to new heights. Because from Will Gadd's perspective, to be resilient, we have to adapt to the changing landscapes we face right in front of us. We don't have time to waste. Back in, I don't know, 2011, 2012, I looked at my own personal carbon footprint and I realized that uh, flying actually accounted for 60 to 70% of my personal carbon footprint. And I wanted to try to do something about it. Electric cars were were sort of on the horizon. And I thought the same thing was going to happen with electric airplanes. That's Jeff Engler. He is the founder and CEO of Wright Electric. As an entrepreneur in the aviation space, he thinks a lot about what we could be doing better, starting with his own carbon footprint. You kind of calculated your own carbon footprint. A, how did you do that? And, And B, why did you do that? My grandmother uh, is a real environmentalist and got me thinking about my carbon footprint from a young age. And so one day I thought, I said, why don't I try to put some numbers behind it, you know? And, and if you go, you know, you search on Google for car- what is my carbon footprint or a carbon footprint calculator, there's a couple of sort of forms that you fill out and they ask you, well, how much meat do you eat every day? And um, how often do you drive your car? And I found that, you know, tweaking those made, made sort of a small difference. So if I eat vegetarian, you know, twice a week versus three times a week, it makes a sort of moderate impact. Or if I ride my bicycle rather than, than you know, driving, it makes a moderate impact. But then I saw you just you just see the numbers rise. Every single flight you take has such a large impact on your carbon footprint. And Jeff, being the diligent cyclist that he is, realized that eliminating planes from his life was a near impossible task in the modern world. So he searched for a more sustainable solution. There was actually an interesting report that came out uh, from the World Economic Forum uh, at the Farnborough Air Show just in July of this year. They looked at uh, reducing the carbon footprint of aerospace, and they looked at a lot of the different technologies that people are thinking about. For example, things like biofuels and carbon credits and, you know, a bunch of other things. And what they found was that in many cases, uh, if you could fly electric, uh, either with batteries or with a hydrogen fuel cell, you ended up with the uh, overall lowest uh, global warming equivalent. Jeff's company began an initiative called We Fly Right, encouraging and partnering with bigger airlines and governments to embrace hybrid electric batteries. He says that he aims to increase competition for the industry at large. Sustainability shouldn't be a monopoly. It should be adopted across the board. So what, what our company does is uh, we've built uh, the world's most powerful electric motor for the aerospace industry. And what that's meant to be is a drop-in replacement for the engine core of a jet engine. We're going to show that we can build an airplane that's the size of a commercial airplane, the, the typical airplane that you might fly. Let's say you're doing a flight from New York to Boston or London to Paris, uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco. And we're going to show that it's possible to fly that uh, either hybrid electric or fully electric, dramatically reducing the carbon footprint in the industry. Dramatically reducing the carbon footprint is a tall order, especially for an industry of this size. How much so? Well, so just like with automotive, you start with hybrid and eventually you move to electric. So we'll start with, let's say, 25, 30% reduction, and then eventually we'll get to fully electric, which is 100% reduction. And what you're seeing in the, in the automotive world is 
you know, in the beginning, they basically bought them as toys. It was like, gosh, isn't this a cool thing to get to show people? And then eventually it transformed the industry. And that's that's exactly what, what we're looking to see uh, with the aerospace industry. So with with this um, this concept that you have around this eventually fully electric airplane experience for passengers going from you know like you say LA to San Francisco or Boston to New York, um, where are you in the process? How you know how far are you along? You know, could I step on one of these airplanes in the next year, five years, fifteen years, twenty years? Yeah, so you'll start to see um, hybrid electric airplanes in the commercial size uh, in the next, let's say, three to five years. The way it'll start is with retrofits of existing airplanes, just like the electric vehicle industry started with retrofits of existing cars. And then you'll start to see, you know, new design from scratch uh, airplanes in the beginning of the next decade. Until then, the aviation industry faces conflicting pressures. Market demands on the one hand but concern for the planet on the other. Because by 2050, airlines are projected to account for 25% of global CO2 emissions. Relying on fossil fuels is fraught, and innovating how we fly will be the key to thriving in the future. But aviation is much more complicated than simple supply and demand. There are rules and regulations, pandemics and delays. And of course, then there are directives all the way from the top. I mean, President Biden and, you know, he signed an executive order last year um, looking at trying to foster greater competition here in the United States. How important was that executive order? Do you feel like it went far enough? Well, look, it's transformational. And for example, the technology industry where, you know, you hadn't really seen antitrust legislation in, you know, let's say big tech. And now you're seeing a lot more. What we would ask is, you know, hey, are there some sleeping giants? industries, they're so big that they're hiding in plain sight. You don't even think about uh, competition in these areas because it's not even it's not something you've ever had to think about. But what are what are ways that, you know, you're starting to see impacts that are, let's say, not great for consumers because you have things like monopolies or duopolies? What kind of impacts? Well, lack of competition, lack of innovation. So if if, you know, it sort of goes back to if in, for example, five of these six hard to abate industries, you have a low level of competition, that suggests that there's going to be a low level of innovation. The six hard to abate industries that Jeff mentions are cement, steel, plastics, heavy road transport, shipping and aviation. This classification means that there are no alternatives to these industries. They are not going anywhere, but they cause the most harm to the environment and lack immediate large-scale sustainable solutions. Which means the status quo, things like, you know, highly polluting steel, highly polluting plastics, single-use plastics, probably isn't going to change very much. So if you want to think about the mechanics, how do we actually make change? The, one of the key things to do is to make more competition. And those six industries are a great place to look at. Whose responsibility is it? Uh, you know, is sustainable flight the responsibility of the public or the private sector uh, or a collaboration of both? It has to be a collaboration of both. I mean, number one, it's, it's got to start with demand. You know, the, the, the work that general consumers are doing on a day-to-day basis to identify their personal carbon footprints to, in some senses, not fly in protest and to, uh, to tell people that they're looking for zero emissions technology 
But once the demand is there and we know the demand is there, then it's sort of a combination of of private companies like ourselves, certainly larger public companies, and there's government agencies that, that have a lot of opportunities as well. And so I think it's sort of a collaboration of all four of those, the, the public, the ultimate consumers, uh, number two, um, private companies, number three, public companies, and then and then governments as well. And so, you know, when we think about reducing the carbon footprint of the aerospace industry, it's not only for carbon reasons, it's also to keep U.S. competitiveness. I grew up abroad. I've traveled a lot over my life, and it's an incredibly important part of me personally to stay connected to friends and family. I think especially today where the world is so polarized, being able to connect with people who live in areas that are different from yours and understand their life experiences, I think is critical. My name is Raya Whalen, and I am the Senior Director of Innovations for the Boston Consulting Group. My day job right now is focused on how can I actually help the sector decarbonize. And I think what's so unique about aviation is you need a portfolio of solutions. It's about actually making sure the incentives are in place such that those solutions can actually be used by the aviation sector and also looking forward and trying to set the groundwork to make sure that 10 and 15 and 20 years from now, you actually have a broader portfolio of solutions so that people no longer feel guilty about getting on a plane and going to see friends or family or going to a to a work conference or anything like that. Raya also sits on the Aviation Climate Task Force. It's a group founded by 10 different airlines alongside BCG, all of whom who have come to the table with the same goal, to decarbonize travel and tourism. One of her tasks is to help the industry turn ambiguity into opportunity by helping them sense the current moment and adapt to change from COVID to global conflict. She believes preparing for uncertainty and planning past it is the key to a competitive and resilient industry. What's so interesting when you think about aviation is there's some solutions that are available today. You can also think about flying planes differently. And so this means, you know, routing planes more directly from point A to point B, um, having planes take off in quicker succession or things like, you know, having a plane circle less before it lands. We've all been, we've all been um, on a plane where you circle an airport for 20 minutes before landing. But those two things, while they can reduce emissions, you know, ultimately you are still sending a plane into a sky and having it fly from one point to another. There's different strategies that airlines have around how often you replace your fleet every time an airline retires a plane, the plane that they're buying to replace that plane typically is 20% more fuel efficient. And so that's something that's been... That seems like a big deal. It's a huge deal. And that's done through things like using, using different materials to build the plane so that the plane is actually lighter and doesn't burn as much fuel um, to take off and fly through the sky. Um, The engines are more efficient. Um, It's also things like changing the aerodynamics slightly of a plane, things that you wouldn't notice. There are solutions that exist today, but as Raya points out, they may not be enacted until years from now. And along the way, planning for uncertainty might be the best strategy. 
the mission of the Aviation Climate Task Force is to accelerate breakthroughs in the next generation of technology that, that will help the sector decarbonize. So because of the long lifetimes of aircrafts, if you want a solution to be in the market in the next 10 to 20 years, you've actually got to start working on it now. That's why the aviation sector is so hard to decarbonize. Even if you had the solution today, you wouldn't necessarily have the solution fully in market until, you know, 2050. When you look at sustainable aviation fuel, it's so critical because you can actually use it with the engines that are running today and you can mix it with traditional fossil fuel. It acts as a drop-in fuel. You've got the supply chains, airports are set up to actually fuel planes um, and all of that infrastructure exists. The design of aircrafts, the routes they take, the declogging of airports themselves, these are all small but manageable ways to decrease carbon emissions. But they won't be enough if we don't evolve how we fuel aeroplanes. And that requires investment to make the industry more resilient. Who is paying for this? It's like, it's not the FAA. Is it the airlines? Who's funding all of this? You actually see different corporations that are that have committed to net zero and that are buying sustainable aviation fuel to help airlines actually cover some of that cost. So, wait, so that's interesting. If we think about just the 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 current financial climate that we're operating in, and people are certainly financially anxious right now, anything that's passed on to the consumer in terms of cost is going to be met with some resistance, even I think amongst some people who are green focused. So when you think about sustainable aviation fuel today, it's it's more expensive than traditional jet fuel. And so you end up needing things like potentially electric aviation, potentially hydrogen powered planes, um, things like synthetic fuel, which is fuel that's made from carbon dioxide and water. Um, You'll need other sources to meet the demand of travel that we expect to see 30 years from now. In the vehicle space, in sort of the you know motor vehicle space, I think that electric powered cars seem to have been sort of the cause du jour. Are we going to see a similar approach in air travel? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the auto sector versus the aviation sector is the airlines are not actually building their own planes, right? That's where, unlike the auto sector, the entire sector needs to collaborate. You're starting to see the innovation in electric in some of the announcements that have been made um, by OEMs around focusing on hydrogen, right? You're starting to see the sector really mobilize towards not just the short-term sustainable aviation fuels and getting that industry up and running, but also the next generation of solutions. Shouldering the environmental burden isn't a self-assigned mission from airlines. It's a society-wide conversation and increasingly a government mandate. In Europe, the Aviation Safety Agency has passed SAF, or Sustainable Aviation Fuel, Their mandates that require all airlines to use at least 5% sustainable fuel by 2030, with increases from then on. It puts the pressure on aviation and the priority on the planet. From an airline perspective, you're actually requiring essentially all airlines to be using sustainable aviation fuel. And so the incremental cost of 
the green fuel that you're using gets passed along to all consumers. Whereas if you don't have that mandate, an airline that chooses to use a higher portion of sustainable aviation fuel, they have to figure out how to actually pay for that. And so it'll be interesting to see which approach ends up working better. That's really interesting because it gets to the heart of like our series about American competitiveness, right? So like, you know, the US in terms of the approaches that it's adopting versus the European approach, the US is adopting a much more carrot approach when it comes to um, encouraging airlines to pivot to sustainable aviation fuel. Europe seems to be adopting a stick approach. How will we know, like, what will the markers be about which one won and like which one was the right approach? And, and you know, because... the metrics seem to be sort of slightly different. How do you think we're going to know if America got it right? I actually don't think it matters whether the American approach or the European approach is better. Right now, what we're trying to do is build supply and bring the cost down, right? Sustainable aviation fuel is anywhere from two to like eight times more expensive than traditional jet fuel. And so all you need to do right now is incent producers to be producing and airlines to be purchasing fuel. And as production, as refineries get built, as the supply chains get stood up, you'll actually see sustainable aviation fuel start to come down the cost curve. And that's ultimately what you want so that in 2030, when the 5% um, mandate hits, it is much more affordable and you can continue to scale and grow from there. Climate goals have to be central to any business touching aviation. If they aren't already, it's unlikely that the company will survive. And for a company to flourish, business leaders have to place more emphasis on resiliency. And that means more dollars and human capital into tackling climate change. You have airlines that are flying from America to Europe and then turning around and flying back again. And so you need the solutions available in Atlanta. You need the solutions available in London because the airplane has to make the return trip. You need changes to airport infrastructure and to supply chains. And so it's not like you can say one airline is going to be the only sustainable airline. The industry has to work together to get there. I don't think 20 years from now, you're going to have an airline that looks like it does today and another airline that is totally, totally green. Ultimately, competing in this space is about exponential gains towards a massive shared goal. It isn't about competing against something, another airline or another climber. It is about competing for the sake of something. We're talking about shifting the focus away from winners or losers towards an understanding that we must come together and build for the sake of our society and the health of our planet. As explorer Will Gad will tell you, that takes a willingness to check our bearings, adapt to the circumstances, and continue the climb. We do need some degree of collectiveness to function well as a society. Like what has made America great is the functioning society that allows individuals to kick ass. And, you know, humans are amazing. We can climb icicles and we can adapt, but we have to adapt. We can't just say, oh, climate change isn't happening because it is. And it's and it's quite fast right now. And we need to lift everybody up to allow our, our best to shine. 
do you have faith in our ability as humans to kind of innovate our way out of this problem? My kids totally drive me on this. They're way more switched on about it. They're thinking about this stuff and they're engaged with it. It's really exciting. They're like, oh, okay, you know, can we, can we do solar? What can we do? But I guess to, where I'm going with this is innovation is, is going to be part of the solution in my mind. That's what's driven me as an athlete my whole life is to be better. And now I'm trying to do better from a climate perspective. And I think that's what's needed. If we're like, it has to be perfect, it won't happen. But we can do better. I do have endless faith in humans to adapt. That's what we're best at. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from adaptive solutions in the sky to meaningful data in the classroom.